Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 27, 1 Kings chapter 16. Well, when we met last, we had just uh, begun 1 Kings chapter 16 that opens with the story of King Baasha's inglorious and shameful end. Now we're going to reread the entire chapter, but first I want to set the stage for today's lesson with some words spoken by C.F. Kiel, that great 19th century German biblical scholar, as concerns especially the behavior and character of the kings of the northern tribes of Israel. And he says this of them, there was something very strange in the perversity and the stolidity of the kings of Israel. See, essentially Kiel's take was that as each new king's insistence on emulating and outdoing the wickedness of the previous king of Israel that they had succeeded, well, this can't be accounted for in normal, carnal human terms because they personally saw or were directly involved in the destructive outcome of the previous king and his regime. These new kings were smart. They were cunning. So why would they do the same things the deposed kings did but think they would achieve a successful outcome? In fact, this kind of mindset is reflected in a modern proverb that says the definition of insanity is to keep doing the same things while expecting a different result. Now no doubt this strange perversity that dominated the lives of the kings of Israel that we see exposed throughout the book of Kings was a kind of spiritual blindness. Or, or at the least, it was their lack of interest in dipping into the bountiful well of godly wisdom and instead they chose something else that came from a darker source. And that something else is identified for us as idolatry. But as we begin to reread chapter 16, let's keep something in mind. Up to this point in Israel's history, the idolatry of the northern tribes that was begun in earnest by Jeroboam was expressed primarily in the worship of the golden calves that he had built. One of them was located in Bethel, the other was in the city of Dan. And in a rather convoluted way, see, it's not that the northern tribes stopped worshiping Jehovah God of Israel. Rather, these golden calves were largely meant to be representations of Jehovah, meant to replace these God-ordained symbols that existed in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, of course, to create this graven image violated the Torah law as given to Moses in the second commandment. But to their thinking, they weren't giving up their God. 
They were merely mixing in some standard pagan ways with their worship of Jehovah, and in their spiritual blindness, they felt, well, the era's past when such a thing as making God images was, was prohibited. It's okay now. So with that background, let's reread 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16, page 390 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. The word of Adonai came to Yel, the son of Hanani, against Basha. I raised you up out of the dust and I made you a prince over my people Israel. But you have lived in the same way as Jeroboam, Jeroboam, caused my people Israel to sin so that their sinning has made me angry. Therefore, I'm going to sweep away Basha and his house completely. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat. If someone from the line of Basha dies in the city, the dogs will eat him. If he dies in the countryside, the vultures will eat him. Other activities of Basha, his accomplishments and his power, are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. Basha slept with his ancestors, and Elah, his son, became king in his place. To the prophet Yel, the son of Hanani, the word of Adonai was proclaimed against Basha and his house, both because he did so much evil, from Adonai's perspective, angering him with his actions, and becoming like the house of Jeroboam, and because he killed Nadav. It was in the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, that Elah, the son of Baasha, began his reign over Israel and Tirzah, and he ruled for two years. His servant Simri, commander of half of his chariots, plotted against him. And finally one time, when Elah in Tirzah, uh, with Elah uh, in Tirzah drinking himself senseless in the house of Artzah, administrator of the palace of Israel, uh, of uh, Tirzah, Zimri entered. He struck him down. He killed him. This was in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah. Zimri then took Elah's place as king. <clears throat> At the beginning of his reign, as soon as he took over the throne, he killed off the entire house of Basha. He left not a single male, neither of his relatives nor of his friends. Thus Zimri eliminated all the house of Basha in keeping with the word of Adonai spoken against Basha through Yeh the, pro the prophet. This word has been spoken. This word had been spoken because of all of Basha's sins and the sins of Elah his son, which they committed and with which they made Israel sin, thereby angering Adonai the God of Israel with their worthless idols. Other activities of Elah and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. It was in the 27th year of Asa king of Judah that Zimri ruled for seven days in Tirzah. And at that time the army was besieging Gibeton, which belonged to the Philistines. The troops in their camp heard it, that Zimri had plotted and killed the king, whereupon that same day there in their camp all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel. Omri and all Israel with him withdrew from Gibthon and besieged Tirzah. And when Zimri saw that the city had been captured, he went into the citadel of the royal palace, and he burned down the royal palace over him so that he died. 
This came about because of the sins he committed in doing what was evil in Adonai's perspective and living as Jeroboam had lived and in sinning by making Israel sin. Other activities of Zimri and his conspiracy are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. At this point, the people of Israel divided into two factions. Half of the people fought, uh, went after Tibni, the son of Ginnat, to make him king, while the other half followed Omri. But the faction supporting Omri won out uh, over that of Zimni, the son of Ginnat, so Zimni died and Omri became king. It was in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, that Omri began his reign over Israel, and he ruled for 12 years, six of them in Tirzah. He bought Mount Shomron from Shemer for 132 pounds of silver. On the mountain he built a city, which he named Shomron, after Shemer, who had owned the mountain. Omri did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, outdoing all of his predecessors in wickedness. For he lived entirely in the manner of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, committing the sins with which he made Israel sin, thereby angering Adonai, the God of Israel, with their worthless idols. Other activities of Omri and the power he demonstrated are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. <clears throat> then Omri slept with his ancestors, and he was buried in Shomron, and Ahav, his son, became king in his place. It was in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, that Ahav, the son of Omri, began his rule over Israel. Ahav, the son of Omri, ruled 22 years over Israel in Shomron. Ahav, the son of Omri, did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, outdoing all of his predecessors. But then, as if it had been a trifling thing for him to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, he took as his wife Isabel, Jezebel the daughter of Etbal, king of the Zidonim, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Shomron. Ahav also set up the Asherah. Indeed, Ahav did more to anger uh, Adonai, the god of Israel, than all the kings of Israel preceding him. It was during this time, during his time, that Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of his firstborn son, Aviram, and erected its gate to the cost of his youngest son, Skuv. This was in keeping with the word of Adonai spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. <coughs> King Baasha was an abject failure. He had been prophetically given the task of wreaking God's judgment upon the dynasty of Jeroboam by destroying it down to the last man. But instead of recognizing that the wickedness of Jeroboam and his son Nadab were the true source of their demise and that the only way that Baasha could ever have attained his new regal standing was at the hand of the God of Israel, Baasha merely continued in those same wicked ways and so he would share the same fate of those kings who came before him and after him. And as we discussed early in our lessons on the book of Kings, the time references used are based on synchronizing the reigns of the kings of Judah with the reigns of the kings of Israel. Now let me remind you that the former glory days of a united 
sovereign nation of Israel under David and Solomon, the one that incorporated all 12 tribes plus the Levites, well, that was over. All right, and that the nation had undergone civil war. It was now split into two independent kingdoms. The kingdom in the south, called Judah, the kingdom in the north, was, um, was called uh, Israel. And it consisted of ten tribes. Asa ruled Judah. The kingdom of the, of the north was now being ruled by, um, by Baasha. King Asa would continue in power in Judah for four, almost 40 years. And he watched many kings of the north come and go. Verse 1 has God's prophet Yehu pronouncing a curse, a death penalty, over the house of Basha. Now it's interesting to me that despite terrible idolatry and all the sin that the people of Israel were committing, God had not disowned them. Notice how in verse 2, the Lord refers to them as my people, Israel. This is a loving reminder of a father who longs for his children to repent and to return to him. It's equally interesting that the curse against Baasha's family in one sense didn't apply directly to him. Instead of being murdered or dying young, Basha ruled for 20 years and apparently died of natural causes. He was respectfully buried in the city of Tirzah, which he used as his capital city. After him followed his son Elah. It's this son who would suffer the direct prophetic curse pronounced by Yehu. Now Elah is said to have ruled for only two years. However, it's important to remember that because of the dating system used for the kings at this time in history, those two years are not referring to an overall time span of of two years, 24 months, but rather to the fact that he reigned during parts of two consecutive calendar years. Generally agreed to have been the years 883-882, B.C. by our modern calculations. He began his rule, we're told, over Israel in the 26th year of King Asa's reign over Judah, and Elah only ruled Israel for a few months, dying in the 27th year of King Asa's reign. Verse 10 says, Elah was murdered by one of his own military commanders named Zimri. Now what we're about to see from here forward is a new dynamic in Israel in which the military leaders use their armies to put themselves into power by force. This, is, this only became possible because once David became king, he created a substantial standing army in Israel instead of having a militia. This army of professional Israelite soldiers, of course, recognized their power. And so during these chaotic times, they saw fit to use that power to their advantage. In most aspects, Israel was becoming a kingdom ruled as a military state. 
Now we're told that like his father, Elah used the city of Tirzah as his capital city. Now it's interesting to know that Tirzah, as were most cities, was named after its founder. Okay? Tirzah was a woman that we first encounter in Numbers chapter 27. Her father, Zelophehad, and his wives had borne him no sons, only daughters. And the twelve tribes, as they were nearing the promised land, and as a result of a census, these daughters approached Moses and demanded that their family be given territory in Canaan even though their son, uh, there were no sons and their father was dead. Zelophehad was of the tribe of Manasseh. Numbers 27 teaches us this. Then the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, approached. These were the names of his daughters, Machah, Noah, Hoglah, Milcah, and Tirzah. They stood in front of Moses, Eleazar the Cohen, the leaders in the whole community, at the entrance of the tent of the meeting, and said, Our father has died in the desert. He wasn't part of the group who assembled themselves to rebel against Adonai and Korah's group, but he died of his own sin. He had no sons. Now why should the name of our father be eliminated from his family just because he didn't have a son? Give us property to pass along with the brothers of our father. Moshe brought their cause before Adonai. Adonai answered Moshe, the daughters of Zelochad are right in what they say. You must give them property to be inherited along with that of their father's brothers. Have what their father would have inherited passed to them. So, in the, uh, this city that the northern kings were using as their capital city was in Manasseh's tribal territory and it had been founded by Zelophehad's daughter Tirzah and it was still going by that name all these centuries later. Now Zimri commanded a brigade of chariots. In fact we're told that half of all the chariot forces of the northern kingdom were under his command. And it's clear from what follows that Zimri was not a popular commander and neither did his sway extend beyond his own chariot brigade. In what was an obvious conspiracy, Zimri used a moment in time to assassinate King Elah when the bulk of the Israelite army was away laying siege to the Philistine enclave of Gibbethon. And apparently the king was lured to a drunken party arranged by a co-conspirator named Arzah, who was actually the house steward over the king's palace. And after Elah had lapsed into an alcohol-caused stupor, Zimri murdered him, and he declared himself to be the king of Israel. However, to his surprise, the Israelite army didn't support him. Verses 11 and 12 explain that Zimri immediately set about to kill not only all the male relatives and offspring of Elah, but even Elah's friends. But in most Bibles, including our complete Jewish Bibles, where it uses the English word relatives for some of those killed by Zimri, in reality that gives us the wrong impression. The Hebrew word used there is ge'al, 
And it means kinsman redeemer. So the idea is that those in Elah's family, the kinsman redeemers, who would have the, well, they'd be duty bound to reclaim the honor of Elah's family by hunting down Elah's killer, namely Zimri, they were all promptly done away with. And for all practical purposes, that meant every male family member, no matter how young, and it also could have meant no female was spared who was close enough in bloodline to Elah to produce a male child who could have assumed the kinsman redeemer role at some later date. Thus, Basha's bloodlines were completely terminated at the death of his son Elah and all of his living descendants as well as all possible future descendants and all of this was in fulfillment of the curse that God had handed down through God's prophet Jehu. The reason for God's anger to cause this slaughter is stated in verse 13. It says that it was because of all of Baasha's and his son Elah's sins and in turn their sinful leadership caused the people of Israel to sin which meant that the holy and just God of Israel had no choice but to take action that was going to be harmful to his people. But more, the end of the verse says that another reason was because of their worthless idols. That's what it says in the complete Jewish Bible. Other versions say it was because of their vanities. And frankly, that's a superior translation. The Hebrew word being translated is habel. And it means something that has the characteristics of, of, of breath or vapor. Something that has almost no substance to it. It's here for a moment and then it's gone, which is the definition of a vanity. <coughs> Rabbi Baruch taught us in his most recent Love Israel conference that the idea of this word is similar to another Hebrew word that's used in Amos 7, and that word is Ishach. And the learned rabbis say that this word means to play around, to do useless, worthless things. And that is essentially also the meaning of Habel. So instead of the kings of Israel teaching their people to do what God has commanded, they have led their people to do lots of religious actions, but whose actions have no value in God's eyes. See, this is exposing a very important God principle that has eaten at my soul for a long time. Because my beloved church has ventured far down this same dark path from which few of the brethren are, will likely ever return. Okay. The sense of what is being said in verse 13 is that the Israelite people, as led by their leaders ceased worshiping God in the ways that he says he's to be worshipped and instead they've taken up worship practices that they enjoyed but it was all really nothing but vanity they tried to worship him in ways that were in tune with their pagan neighbors in ways that served a leadership agenda in ways that seemed less stringent a lot more fun 
in tune with the times and with the predominantly freewheeling culture. These ways serve to try and make the God of Israel seem more attractive and winsome. The people actually believed they were doing good because their leaders told them what they were doing was good. But these ways were simply vanity and it amounted to no worship whatsoever. In those times, there were no scrolls or books of the Torah for the general population to consult. Those were in the sole possession of the priesthood. For the average family, there were only whatever word-of-mouth traditions that had been handed down from generation to generation. So it was primarily the leaders of Israel, secular and, and the priesthood, that God held responsible for the people's perverse behavior, for their pagan worship practices, since it was they who talked to people. And we read of God's attitude concerning that here. And we're going to read of the same as we continue throughout the book of Kings. But you see, in our modern era, the general population has no such built-in excuse for gleefully following their blind guides that pass today for our religious leadership. Christians especially don't have to ignorantly believe our political leadership and fall prey to their power and social agendas often using Bible passages taken out of context and supposed better moral positions that reflect modern intellectual enlightenment to achieve it all. Bibles are available to us anywhere from cheap to free. Good, sound, biblical teaching can be had on the internet often at no cost if you just want to find it. The congregation of the church can only be fooled if we want to be fooled because we like what we hear. And while Christian leadership bears much blame for this state of affairs, unlike the era of the kings, the general Christian population is also on the hook for God's wrath. And we see that personal, individual responsibility for our behavior, for our religious observances, for our worship practices, that individualism is emphasized throughout the New Testament. One must understand that in the Oriental mindset of that era, the end of Elah's family meant that his father Baasha's eternal essence would also end, as it was thought to be transmitted from generation to generation by means of a son's bloodlines. It was truly the worst possible curse that a human could fear. The simultaneous end of one's physical life and one's eternal soul. So what we have is that Basha killed off all the bloodlines and thus terminated the eternal life essence of Jeroboam's family. And now Zimri has done the same to Basha. 
But Zimri's reign over Israel would be short-lived. In fact, it probably isn't even correct to call him a king of Israel. Okay. Rather, it's a title that he gave to himself and few in Israel ever acknowledged it. Further, as verse 15 explains, his so-called reign lasted seven days. Was there even a coronation ceremony? Probably not. Verse 16 explains that when the Israelite army that was besieging Gibbethon heard about King Elah's assassination and Zimri declaring himself king, they became enraged and they determined that if any military commander would be king, it's going to be Omri, their commander. So they quit their siege of the Philistine, Philistine fortress city and they marched to their own capital city of Tirzah and they laid siege to it. Zimri was caught by surprise and he was trapped. And seeing that he had no chance to survive, he fled into the palace, he set it on fire, committing suicide, and thus denying Omri the honor of executing, executing him or of even having a royal palace for him to rule from. Now I want to point out that we've run into the term <clears throat> all Israel on a number of occasions in this chapter and we're going to in the following chapters as well. What we have to be careful of is applying its meaning in proper context. In general, from a political and a national standpoint, Israel right now means the ten northern tribes, but not Judah. However, from a spiritual standpoint, Israel in God's eyes means all the tribes. Even more, all Israel at times means the specific people involved in an action that's being described. So when we're told in verse six, uh, 17 rather, that all Israel made Omri king of Israel, it really only means the Israelite army at Gibbeton, not all the civilian population. This section of the narrative ends by telling us that the other things that occurred during Zimri's brief reign, as well as the details of his assassination conspiracy, well, these are all recorded in the Book of the Kings of Israel, which is a lost work. But things weren't going well for Omri either. Verse 21 tells us that the people of Israel weren't entirely on board with this idea of a military coup that ended up with a professional soldier now occupying Israel's throne. This would have deeply upset, by the way, the tribal princes. The citizens of the northern kingdom then split into two factions. One that was with Omri and the other one that preferred to have a fellow named Tidni, son of Ganat, as their king. It was apparently a, 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 a rather even split. Now, no doubt it was the military that was for Omri, and it was the civilians that were for Tidni. And we really don't know anything about Tidni, as this is the only mention of him in the biblical record. It's almost certain that he was a civilian or he would have been identified as controlling a certain part of the military rather than just being called the son of Gibnot. 
Now, what goes around kind of comes around, doesn't it? Okay, It was the northern tribal princes under Jeroboam's leadership that wanted to secede from the unified nation of Israel and their greed split God's earthly kingdom into two. Now, because of jealousies and infighting and the lust for power, we have the northern kingdom itself split and operating as two separate factions. So what we find is that there was this ongoing battle for probably around four years between Omri and Tibni and the fight to reunite the northern tribes. And no doubt is the northern alliance completely fractured and there was no clear-cut nation any longer. The tribes gained back a lot of autonomy. And it's now that the most powerful tribe of them all, Ephraim, asserted its dominance. It's now that the Northern Territory name begins to evolve from Israel, which is a national-oriented name, to Ephraim, which is a tribal-oriented name. And like the patriarch Jacob, who was known by two different names, the national name of Israel, the personal name of Yitzhak, So it is that the northern kingdom will now go by two different names. The national name of Israel and the tribal name of Ephraim. This is something that all Bible students must be acutely aware of from this time forward in history. Or it can become significantly confusing. Especially when dealing with end times prophecies. All right, concerning Israel. This is a really important thing to know. Well, in time, Tibni died. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to whether he died in battle or from some other cause. That event ended the power struggle, and now the northern kingdom had one king, Omri. It happened in the 31st year that King Asa was reigning in Judah. So as an aside, we see that Judah has enjoyed a relatively long period of political and religious stability at the same time that the northern kingdom of Israel went through coup after coup, king after king. And the length of Omri's reign is quoted as 12 years, but that includes the time his rule was being disputed by Tibni. So it seems that Omri ruled unchallenged for only seven or eight years. During the first six months of his reign, he continued to use the city of Tirzah as his capital. However, it must have become apparent to this military commander that Tirzah was not easily defended. And so, when peace was finally attained, he sought to move his capital city to a place that was more more formidable, more secure. The story of the move of Israel's capital city to a hilly region that in time came to be called Samaria is now told in the beginning in verse 24. Seems that Omri purchased a hilltop from a fellow named Shemer. So Omri called the place Shemeron 
Apparently at some time later, the way it was vocalized sounded more like Shomron, and that's how we find it in the Bible. In reality, Shomron and Shomron are spelled exactly the same in the all-consonant Hebrew alphabet. Vowel sounds had to be known through experience because they weren't written down. The place Omri chose was a plateau about 1,400 feet high, six miles northwest of Shechem. It was a commanding location. It was surrounded by mountains with only a narrow entrance coming from the west, which you see here. There was a steep approach from all sides, abundant water. It was a perfect location for a fortress and for a defensible capital. Verse 25 explains <clears throat> that once again, Israel's king took the low road. He is said to have been worse than all the kings that came before him. And once again we're told that Omri led the people in ways of religious vanities that didn't honor God. It just merely angered him. Now let's remember that the place Israel had arrived and Omri was now leading them to was the result of a steady slide that had gone on for decades. Omri could hardly be blamed as the sole cause of such a confused and backslidden society. Okay? But when Omri died, his son Ahav took over and a whole new dynamic began. History shows us that there are moments <clears throat> when the wrong leader at the wrong time can take a bad situation and turn matters into catastrophes. Asa was still king of Judah. <clears throat> so there's not a biblical lot of, bob, lot of biblical mention about what was going on in Judah at this time. It was nearing the end of Asa's reign that Ahav came into power in the north. And his rule and his leadership was by far the worst ever seen by an Israelite king. It was so devastating that the least of his bad leadership was simply to continue in the ways of the idolatrous Jeroboam. But now, he took a path from which the northern kingdom would never recover. He married a pagan woman named Jezebel. And she and he became co-rulers over Israel. Isabel was the daughter of the notorious Baal worshiper Ethbal, king of Sidon and Tyre. Ethbal had murdered his own brother Phelus to become king. He made himself the chief priest of Astarte and his daughter Jezebel took after him in every way. Obviously this was something that Ahav sought for himself. After their marriage, <clears throat> Ahav did the unthinkable. He renounced Yehovah as Israel's God. Okay. As bad as the golden calves of Jeroboam were, at least they were considered to be images of Yehovah. And so Yehovah continued to be seen by the people and the kings as Israel's God. No longer. <clears throat> Baal and Astarte were now the official 
and legal father and mother gods for the northern kingdom of Israel. And as a result, we begin to see now a great extension in the role of Jehovah's prophets. And it did it to counter the Baal worship of the northern kingdom. Starting with Elijah, we are going to see a whole series of divine power and miracles on display because anything less just wouldn't do. Now I want to dare to venture off today's lessons in hopes we can learn something important from the pattern of behavior of Israel's kings and what the effect upon their nation was. What I'm about to say is in no way intended. It's partisan politics nor is it to overgeneralize. However, all leadership of a nation or an institution, religious or secular, is inherently political. So there's, there's no way to discuss one without the other. I think today is one of the saddest times in the history of the church. And I have no doubt that it has turned an important and dangerous corner within the past decade or two. There is at present great apostasy within our Christian institutions. And in response to that, God is raising up a new movement of pastors and teachers and leaders who have shunned the traditional church seminaries that simply replicate and multiply the worthless traditions of men that have replaced the matchless Word of God. It ought not surprise us because of where we are in the timeline of redemption history that this movement revolves around Israel, the Jewish people, the Torah, and the entire body of Holy Scriptures. Almost all of which is now considered to be irrelevant, worthless, even heretical, and a danger to a large segment of the mainstream church, both in the East and the West. With no authority whatsoever to do so, centuries ago, church leadership adopted two pagan holidays, attached Christ's holy name to them, and then declared those holidays, holidays to be the most holy days of the year to Christians. Against the express recorded instructions of our Savior, the entire foundation of God's Word has been torn out of our Bibles, dismissed, and declared nailed to the cross of Christ. And this was done while banishing all of the God-ordained appointed times from our midst, calling those who continue to faithfully obey those biblical holy days Judaizers, or worse. Now, a 2009 survey of the church in America accomplished by the respected Barna Group shows that only 34% of self-identified Christians believe in the absolute moral truth as taught by the Holy Scriptures. 34%. Only half believe that the Bible is accurate in the principles it teaches. Most believe 
that the sacred books of other religions such as Islam or Buddhism are on par with and teach the same principles as does the Bible. A mere 40% believe that a person can be affected by spiritual forces such as demons or angels, and only 27% in our time today believe that Satan even exists. On the political front, President Bill Clinton brought gay and lesbian issues to the forefront and declared them normal and desirable. He championed same-sex marriage, abortion on demand, and personally demonstrated and instructed us that sexual morality is dead. Our next president, George Bush, stood in a mosque shortly after 9-11 and declared that the God of Christianity and the God of Islam are the same God. Then in June 2007, candidate Barack Obama said this, whatever we once were, we're no longer a Christian nation. In April 2009, President Obama, on a diplomatic visit to Turkey, told his Islamic audience, we do not consider ourselves to be a Christian nation. We consider ourselves to be a nation of citizens who are bound by ideals and a set of common values. You see, it always takes a series of steps and stages brought about over time by poor leadership to finally arrive at a whole new reality. From challenging biblical values to declaring that there is no difference between the God of the Bible and any other God to finally officially telling the world that as a society and as a government we no longer hold and in fact reject God-ordained biblical values and we will decide those values for ourselves. This only took a few misguided leaders two or three decades to accomplish. It was that path that was the way of the kings of Israel. Now it's the way of America and it's the way of the largest mainstream Christian denominations. For ancient Israel, in time, it all ended in their exile. It was the end of their nation. What's it going to be for America? What's it going to be for the church? What's it going to be for you? Do you have the courage? Do you have the trust? to do what is right in God's eyes and return to the path of holiness, <clears throat> return to a pure worship, or will you succumb to the comfortable, the familiar, the preferred, and follow the ways of the bigger crowds? This chapter ends by telling us that a fellow named Hiel from Bethel decided to rebuild the fortress city of Jericho that had been supernaturally destroyed by God in Joshua's day. In Joshua 6.26 we're told of a curse that the Lord issued against anyone who would suppose to rebuild that which He has torn down. And the curse was 
that the rebuilder of Jericho would lose his sons in the process. That's exactly what happened to Hiel. And let me be clear. Hiel did not go as a private citizen decide that he would personally resurrect the ruins of Jericho as a kind of private residence or estate. No doubt the point of placing this notice here in chapter 16 was to connect Hiel with King Ahav's administration. It would take the resources of a royal treasury and hundreds of workers for such an endeavor. No king would allow a private citizen to erect a private fortress within his national territory. I mean, even the wicked kings before Ahav knew enough to steer clear of trying to rebuild Jericho, no matter what a wonderfully strategic location that it was. But Ahav, who had renounced all allegiance to Jehovah, along with his wife Jezebel, well, they had no such misgivings. We'll begin chapter 17 next week.